All right. Go ahead and grab a seat. My name is Dave, uh, one of the pastors here. So glad that you're with us this morning as we come together to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before we get started, I just want to tell you a funny story. Are Michelle or Gretchen here right now? Michelle or Gretchen? Okay. I'm going to tell you a story about Michelle and Gretchen. (laughs) And to a lesser extent, uh, their friend Kurt. I met them all last night actually. So I've started this new rhythm, don't judge, of finishing my sermon at a local brewery on Saturday night, touching it up, working on it a little bit, uh, using all the great things God has created to stir up my own consideration. And so (laughs) this is two weeks running now, and I'm convinced it's it's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. But I'm sitting there with my notes out, and uh, I've got a couple books that look like this sitting out, and I'm scrolling through one of the books, uh, which is a history of the church. Big, thick book, and I'm in the table of contents. I'm actually looking for a man, a man's name, uh, Pope Nicholas III, because Pope Nicholas III was just a rat. You know, he was just the worst of popes. He bought his way into uh, the papacy. Not all popes are bad, but Nicholas III is bad. I'm looking for him in a list of popes in the back of the book, and I'm going through it. You know, you do it with your finger, and you're scrolling just so that you can make sure you're going. I wasn't sure exactly where he came in the order. And and this gal, um, uh, Michelle, looks over, and she says, excuse me. And I said, yeah. She said, do you have a photographic memory? She thought I was scanning the book and just (laughs) downloading it as memory. And I said, uh, only sometimes. And, and she, I said, no. And she said, oh, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm looking for uh, something here in the index. And she says, well, what are you looking for? And I said, well, I'm looking for Pope Nicholas III. And she said to me, what are you, super Catholic or something? And I said, no, I'm actually preparing for a sermon. And at this point, I'm not dressed as nicely as I am today. I'm in some running shorts and a, a ratty old T-shirt. And she looks at me and she says, oh, uh, so are you like, filling in for somebody, and I said, no. I said, "Um, I'm actually the pastor of the church, and she said, oh, wow, Uh, that's interesting. What what kind of church is it? What's the name of the church? And I I begin to explain to her, it's a newer church named Sedaris. We meet near the 7-Eleven, which is on 40th and Stoneway, and she says, I don't know where that is. I said, do you know where the Mir flagship store is? She said, no, I don't know where that is. And at this moment, her friend, Gretchen, walks back in, and she says, I know where Mir is. Why are we talking about Mir? And, and, and I explained to her, oh, it's near our church. And she says, no way. What's the name of your church? I said, Sedaris. She goes, that's amazing. Just the other day, I met the pastor of Sedaris. And I said, well, that's interesting because I'm the pastor. And she, and, and she goes, oh, really? Uh, I said, it could have been the other pastor, Ryan. And she goes, oh, did he, did he, does he have kids? I said, yeah. He's got some kids. Oh, it must be Ryan. And then, and then she went on to say, yeah, his wife's a dentist. And I said, no, that's not Ryan, at least not that I know about. And then I figured it out. Dave Jen's not here this morning, but you might have met Dave. He's got a couple of kids. Him and his wife, Jen, are actually in the very, very early stages of, of planting a church in Fremont. And they come and they worship with us on Sundays. And I said, was it Dave, Jen? She goes, that's it. I explained it to her, and 
um, we talked for a while, and she was really excited, and hopefully she comes to visit us. It would be really nice to her. Don't tell her I told the story. Uh, but I said this to her. I said, uh, listen now, Gretchen. If it happens once, you could chalk it up to coincidence. If it happens twice, you know God's doing something. So we hope, I hope she comes because tw- two times in the course of a couple weeks, she's met two people from Sedaris, both of whom are pastors, and so I'm sure that Gretchen will be a part, and hopefully Michelle, so if you meet them, don't tell them you know about them already, just be really glad that they're here. So they were great. I just thought it was a really, I just like to share fun stories that happen, and I got to explain to them what I'm about to preach to you this morning about Simon and Simony, about popes and buying up church positions, things like that, and they were like, wow, that's really interesting. I've never been to a church like that. Well, welcome to Sedaris. We talk about all of this stuff here, and this morning we get to talk about Simon. And Simon is an interesting character in uh, the book of Acts. We're walking through the book of Acts. Uh, Simon is going to be a negative example for us. Uh, What not to do, we've been looking more at the positive examples of, of what do we do when we encounter Jesus when we've seen who he is and uh, we understand that he's died for our sin, that he's risen from the grave, and that we too can have new life by the Spirit when we connect ourselves to Jesus by faith. What do we do when that happens? And the answer is we become witnesses to those around us. That we can't go anywhere, even to a brewery, without the potential of becoming a witness to the goodness and the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ. This is what happens. But today, we're going to see a sad story about someone who misses the chance to become a witness, and we'll see why that is. So if you've got your Bible, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, and this story comes to us. Uh, right when the church begins to move out of Jerusalem into the surrounding world. So if you don't have Bibles or some on the ends of the row, ask somebody to pass it down uh, to you. One one of the the ways we break free from sort of some of the bonds that we have in our culture is to pick up a physical copy of a book and read it. So even if you, it's okay if you look it up on your phone, but if you never actually grab a physical Bible, Uh, Maybe make that a habit, just because there's something, I think, really prophetic about picking up an actual physical book and and reading the Word of God. Foreshadowing. (laughs) So, as as you're turning there, let me tell you one other quick story of something that happened this last week. Um, Drum roll. I joined a gym. You say, Dave, wow, you're such good shape, why do you need to join a gym? Well... It's a shell. It's a, it's ex- I'm putting on. The optics are good, <laughs> but the innards are bad. So we are working on the innards. We're trying to get healthy. And I joined a gym. And I did a couple of pre-joining uh, uh, sort of orientation activities at the gym. And, and they, so, they sold me on it. And so I joined the gym. And I also love to save money, if you know this about me, and so they said if you, if you sign up for the full year, you get six months additional for free, dropping the price per month down to a very reasonable rate. And I said, because I like to save money, I'll do it. So I pre-bought basically 18 months at this gym, just, just right down the street here, Emerald City Athletics 
I wonder if I get a discount for mentioning them. Okay. <laughs> Just a couple blocks from here. And so I signed up, okay? Um, now, now here's what didn't happen when I bought my way into this membership. I didn't get in shape. I thought, well, what if I just buy the membership? Won't I immediately experience the power of gym membership? The reality is, no, because what I need to do is develop a relationship with my gym. I can't just buy my gym's affections. I have to develop a relationship with my gym, meaning I have to spend time with my gym. I have to be in the gym and actually do the things that gym membership is meant for. I can't just buy health. And there's certain things in life you just can't buy. There's just no way to purchase the real thing. You, you could purchase a fake. I mean, I could go to the gym. I could show people my membership card, but it won't actually give me the power to transform my body into health and life to the full. There's something else I got to do. I can't just buy my way into it. So, with that as the backdrop, let's begin by reading in Acts chapter 8 as we see Simon trying to buy his way into something real. So let's just start in verse uh, 4 here, and it says this, now those who were scattered went preaching the word. Now, let me give you some context. What we talked about last week, Stephen, the first martyr of the church, he died, he was stoned to death because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and refused to change his message. And so they stoned him to death. And what this led to was an intense persecution of the church, which at this point in human history was isolated to the city of Jerusalem. Okay? Only with Jewish people. The first Christians were all Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. And the movement began within Judaism. But then this persecution rised up, people being thrown into prison. And because of this, uh, out of fear, people scattered. Christians scattered and left the city. And actually, we saw last week that that's actually the plan of God, that he uses death and persecution to move the mission, the message of Jesus. Uh, when it gets too insular, he'll move it out, and this is what he does right here. And so people are being scattered, and when they're being scattered, they're preaching the word. Verse 5, one of these is Philip. Philip, who is one of the seven deacons that we see appointed in chapter 6, along with Stephen. Okay, and so Philip's one of these that goes, and it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now, you can just brush over that and not realize what a huge deal this was, that he goes into Samaria. Samaria was right next to Israel, okay? In fact, Samaritans were uh, what you might call half, well, this is sort of a derogatory term that the Jews would use for Samaritans, half-breeds, meaning they were... Uh, they, they used to be fully Jewish, and then they intermarried with surrounding nations, and so they're not fully Jewish. And so the reason why derogatory terms were used for them is because the Jews despised them. They thought that they had turned their back on God. The Samaritans had created their own place of worship, so they did not come to Jerusalem, to the temple in Jerusalem. And so there was animosity, 
hatred between Jews and Samaritans, and yet Philip goes there and takes them the message of Jesus. You see, that, that's what the message of Jesus always does. It reconciles even the greatest of rivals, even the greatest of enemies with his message of love. That's the good news. So this is huge that Philip's even going to this place and he's proclaiming to them Christ and the crowd's here and they pay attention to Philip and he brings much joy to their city. Verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great and they had all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying this man Simon is the power of God that is called great Simon was a important powerful figure in this region called Samaria he was doing mighty deeds that were helping people and it says verse 10 that they paid attention to him uh, and then my Bible, I just underlined paid because it probably meant he was getting paid. That's not what the word here means, but that's what's going on. He's doing mighty, magical deeds, and people are paying him to do it. That's what would have happened at this time in human history for somebody who had access to this magical power. So much so, so powerful was Simon that they were saying he is the power of God. Not that he has the power of God, but he is the power of God. In him is personified this power. So you, it, it's hard to imagine this, but there is a man who's doing real miracles. This is real magic. This isn't magic as we think of it. It's not sleight of hand. It's not card up the sleeve. He's actually performing real miracles through magical arts. Okay? And the reason why this is so important for us to understand is that what we're going to see next is an interaction between the power of Simon and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so often in our world, especially in our Western minds, we think, uh, well, there's no such thing as magic, there's no such thing as spiritual powers, but the reality is that those things are real. They were real at this time. In our world today, there, there are parts of the world where magic the magical arts are alive and well. In fact, I, I would, I'm, I'm pretty confident to say in Wallingford and Fremont and the U District, there are people practicing magical arts and they're not just faking it. They actually have access to a real power. But the problem is, as powerful as it is, it's not the power of light, it's the power of darkness. Now, they, they don't know that. Simon doesn't know that. You only know that when you actually experience the real power of God, the power of light. And so here we have Simon performing magical deeds, miraculous acts, helping the people of Samaria. They're calling him the power of God, saying that he's connected with the great one, which is God. And so they paid attention to him. So here's what happens. Philip shows up. Verse 12 says, but... Anytime you see but, you know something's changing. But Philip shows up, and Philip has power too. So look what happens. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God 
and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. You see this? Everybody sees that Simon has magical power. Everybody sees that Philip has power. But you see, sometimes it can be hard to distinguish. Sometimes we can't know which power is from God, which power is not from God. This is what's happening in Samaria. So what do they do? They believed Philip. They believed this message. It sounds good. Even Simon's believed. They were all amazed. But yet something hasn't taken full effect yet. And we see that when we read the next section. So read in verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, believed the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Peter and John who were key leaders in the early church. They were apostles. They came down and prayed that they, that's the Samaritans who had received the message, had believed and already been baptized, they prayed that they might now receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is interesting, because if you're here when we talked about baptism, the order usually goes the other way. You receive, you believe the word of God, You receive the Holy Spirit, and then you mark as a sign of that believing and being baptized by the Holy Spirit, you mark that with physical water baptism. That's the typical order that you see. But here, we have it a little bit backwards. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled about why that is. Um, We don't know exactly why that is, but perhaps this could have been for the sake of the Jews in Jerusalem, Even Peter and John. Wait, what? You're telling me that Samaritans are believing the good news? They're being baptized? Philip says, yeah, it's happening. You guys got to come up here and you got to see it. And uh, by them coming up there and participating in the whole experience of conversion and bringing the Holy Spirit, they would have then taken back that information to the church in Jerusalem and telling them, you guys wouldn't believe what's happening. So perhaps that's part of God's plan to, to, for this particular instance, wait in sending the Spirit until John and Peter could be there and participate in it to show this connecting of now the church in Jerusalem with the church that's forming in Samaria. I think that's part of what's going on. But not, not everybody receives the Spirit. Look at what happens in verse 18. Now when Simon, the magician, saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them, that's the apostles, money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Pretty reasonable. This guy trades in mystical, magical powers. And he sees the Holy Spirit being applied through the laying on of hands by men that are clearly powerful like him. And he says, I want that too. And I'll pay you for it. Probably because he was a pretty big deal in that town. Probably because he had some cash. And he says, I want that. And what do you do when you want something? You buy it. 
So he tries to buy it. He tries to buy it. Let's see what Peter, how he responds to this indecent proposal. He says this, verse 20, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. You see? You see, you can't buy the Holy Spirit. Now you thought you could. In fact, it's common sense in an economic world. Everything has its price, right? You've heard that saying? Everybody's got a price. Tell me your price. There's no price for the gift of God. Your heart's not right. Verse 22. So Simon Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. May be forgiven you. This is such good news, friends. The intent of Simon is to profit off of the Holy Spirit, to profit off of God. And Peter says, you know what, even though the intent of your heart is so evil, if you repent, turn from that thinking, turn from those ways, change your thoughts about how God works, and ask for forgiveness, you can be forgiven. And you can still have the gift. So no thought, no deed, nothing that you've ever done is too much for God to forgive. I hope you hear that. I hope you know that that's true. No one is beyond repentance and forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at what Peter says next in verse 23. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Gall here means the, the, the bitter fluid uh, that's in the liver. He says everything on your insides is bitterness. You're, you're held bound by your iniquity. Now, I, I think that Peter could physically see the marks of this iniquity, of the bitterness. He could see it in the face of Simon. I don't know if you've ever met somebody who is so entrenched, maybe, maybe even in the mystical, magical arts, and you can almost see it in their eyes. They're bound up. But it's so hard to give away because there's some power in it too. I think they could see it in him. And if not physically, they could spiritually discern that he was bound up by his connection with this power that had made him this very famous, very powerful, very rich man. So you see Peter's heart here for Simon. I want, I want you to see that. He loves Simon. He wants him to turn from this way and to receive the free gift of God. Look how Simon responds. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now at first glance you might be like, Oh, that's good. He gets it. But he doesn't get it. Because what did Peter say? You can pray to God and he'll forgive you. 
And Simon comes and he says, can you guys pray for me? I know you guys know God pretty well. Could you pray for me? Because I don't really want this destruction stuff that, that Philip was talking about. I, I want to kind of escape that. But you, you don't hear him saying, I repent. God, please forgive me. You, you see? I mean, he believes enough to know that these guys have some connection with God, and so he's like, I want them to pray for me. Now, Simon, to me, he is quite a sympathetic character. He's not a villain. He's kind of a lovable lad, you know? He's like a lot of the friends that I have. I feel like I've been where he has been. Maybe you hear yourself in Simon. It's almost hard not to like Simon. He's not argumentative. He gladly receives Philip's message. He's all for it. Thumbs up. Come on. Yeah, this is great. He's not dismissive. He actually follows Philip. He didn't just just dismiss him. He doesn't think he's better than Philip. He follows him. He learns from him. He's affirming. He's positive. He's He participates. He's down for anything. He's for everyone. He's peppy. He's helpful. He's helping his city. You see? He even asked the apostles to pray for him. He's like, you know, guys, uh, I don't really know God that well, but I know that you do. Could you just pray for me? I got this tough thing going on. So he believes that prayer works. I mean, he's a lovable lad. And... He really believed in Philip. He believed that the apostles had a real thing, that it was real power. He believed it was so real that he wanted to buy it. Do you see all this? You have friends like this? Are you like this? You're for the gospel message. You love the message of love, unconditional. You love the idea of grace. For everything. You're positive. You even want to add Jesus to your life. You got no problem with Jesus? I'll take him too. Give me some of that Holy Spirit. I'll just add it to the other stuff I've got. See, it's, it's hard not to like Simon. But he's sad. It's, it's sad because he can't give up the good thing that he's got. He can't risk losing the good things that he has to get the better, the greater gift from God. So what do you do with friends like that? That are excited about the gospel, but maybe they're also excited when their friend brings out the tarot cards. They're just kind of for it all. What do you do? I think we do what the apostles did. I think we have to get together with those people, look them in the eye, one-on-one for coffee, and say to them, listen, I need to clarify something for you. Jesus isn't an add-on. He's not something to add to the portfolio. It's not the way it works. You're missing out on really the great joy of knowing him if you're just adding him on. And I think the reason you do it one-on-one is that these types of people, I think often, Simon's probably like this, uh, they sort of feed off the energy of the crowd. They feed off the emotional connectedness. They feel in a social gathering. So they're for everything as long as everybody's doing it, right? Everybody in Simon's town's getting excited about Philip. I'm excited about Philip. 
So you remove them from that, you get really clear with them, and you just say, hey, I just want you to understand really what's going on here, and that to receive Jesus means to, to let go of some other things. So Simon is a sort of a lovable, sympathetic, but ultimately very sad story. In fact, it's so sad that uh, he has an entire category of sin named after him. I mentioned this at the beginning. It's called simony. So at some point, I don't know when it was, but pretty early on in uh, the church, they began to describe this type of sin. Anytime you try to purchase God, and oftentimes it's purchasing a position of power within the church, buying your way to the papacy would be the ultimate example, which has happened many, many a time buying your way into a position of power within the local church. Anytime that happens, it's known as Simon. Could you imagine having an entire category of sin named after you? Sad story. And it was right there in front of him. He had the chance to receive the Holy Spirit. So what's the root of Simon's problem? The root of his problem is is that he sees the world incorrectly. He needs a paradigm shift. He needs to change the way he sees the world. So if you understood ancient cultures, particularly the ancient Near East and Greek culture, what you'd understand um, is there, uh, this is the way they viewed the gods. There was many, many gods. You would pick which gods you wanted to worship, which gods you wanted to take sacrifices to, which gods you wanted to buy membership into their cult. Rodney Stark, who I mentioned last week, who wrote the book The Rise of Christianity, sociologist who worked at UW for many, many years, um, ultimately wrote this book trying to show how Christianity grew as a non-Christian, realized after writing it, it doesn't make sense without the Holy Spirit, (laughs) became a Christian. So if you pick this book up, just realize this is not written from a Christian perspective, but we learn a lot about the amazing things that were happening in the early church. And one of the things he talks about in here is the difference between pagan, what he calls um, cult religions, or client cult religions, and the Jesus movement. And the difference between those two was one of the reasons, he, he'll say, the church actually grew because what was happening in the church was, seemed so much more profound than what was happening in these client cult religions. Because client cult religions would work, uh, as I said, you'd sort of buy your way in. You could pay your way to power. Uh, It had this consumer-client-priest relationship. So let me just read you a couple quotes from this book, and uh, I'll I'll read the intro to it, and then we'll put the quote up. Um, He says this about client cults. He says, uh, in 1797, William Sims Bainbridge and I first introduced the concept of the client cult to characterize non-exclusive religious firms, which are very, very common in this time. The terminology was meant to emphasize that the relationship between the producer and the consumer far more closely resembled that between practitioners and clients than that between clergy and church members. You see? The church was a totally new thing in this world of religions. And then, and then he quotes... Emil Berkheim, Berkheim says this, also a sociologist, between the magician and the individual who consults him, as between these individuals themselves, there are no lasting bonds. The magician has clientele and not a church. 
And it is very possible that his clients have no other relations between each other or even do not know each other. Even the relations which they have with him are generally accidental or transient. They are just like those of a sick man with his physician. Um, And then Stark uh, concludes this by saying this, Berkheimer summed up the, the matter by asserting that there is no church of magic. That is, a church rests upon people's maintaining long-term, stable, and exclusive commitments. But when people construct a religious portfolio, their commitment to any given stock is weak and subject to constant repraisal. You see see what he's pointing out here? That in this time, Simon is functioning as, as a magician. And he sees the world as, yes, religious power, religious messages, they're like client, and producer. And so this thing Philip's doing must be the same way because the apostles came up and laid hands. So it must be the same way. Well, Peter's saying that's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. So how does it work? Stark goes on to talk about this concept, and he quotes a man named E.R. Dodds who explains it this way. A Christian congregation was from the first a community in a more fuller sense than any corresponding group um, at, at this time. Its members were bound together not only by common rites or rituals, but by a common way of life. Love of one's neighbor is not an exclusively Christian virtue, but in this period, Christians appear to have practiced it much more effectively than any other group. The church provided the essentials of social security, Loving social relationship. But even more important, I suspect, than these material benefits was the sense of belonging which the Christian community could give. You see that? The most amazing part of Christianity and being a part of the Jesus movement is not the power to heal or the signs and the wonders. It's the power of being in a real community, a real community where people are loved, unconditionally. Stark summarizes this. He says this, you did not approach Christian clergy to purchase religious goods, that's in the church, in the Jesus movement, but to be guided in fulfilling the Christian life. Nor were the clergy distanced from their flocks. They were not an initiated elite holding back arcane secrets, but teachers and friends selected as Tertullian, an early church leader, explained not by purchase, but by established character. You see this? This is not a client-practitioner relationship. I'm just one of the family. I'm just a brother and sister to each of you. There's not this distance. I don't have something that you can't have. I don't have some secret knowledge. I don't have some secret power. We're all in this together. That was a totally foreign idea in these cult religions of which Simon assumes there's no other way. But Philip came along and he taught another way. Tertullian, who I mentioned, who uh, was living in the second century AD, so he's a part of the early church right after the apostles, uh, he wrote this. And we've got this slide here as well. He said, there is no buying and selling of any sort in the things of God. Though we have our treasure chest, it is not made up of purchase money, 
as of a religion that has a price. On the monthly day, if he likes, he, that's the parishioner, person a part of the church, puts in a small donation, but only if he has pleasure to do so, and only if he is able. For there is no compulsion, all is voluntary. These gifts are, as it were, piety's deposit fund. That's how it works in the church. Yes, money is exchanged in a community like this, but it's not done out of obligation. It's not done to buy anything. It's only done out of goodwill, a heart full of generosity, responding to what God's done for us. So there's, there's not this cult-client relationship. But Simon didn't see that. He couldn't see that. He was so steeped in the ways of his culture that he was blinded to the beauty and the wonder and the difference of Christianity. And so my heart, again, is sad for him. He thought Christianity was just another client cult religion of the day, and he wanted a piece of it. You see, he didn't understand the primary core concept of Christianity, which is grace. And grace means a free gift, meaning that God has given us a gift, not by anything that we have done or will do in the future, but simply because he loves us. It is the core concept that holds together the entire Jesus movement. Grace cannot be bought because it's a free gift given by God. And grace is all about relationship. We receive grace through relationship. It's not an impersonal product that we buy off of the shelf. Grace is always about relationship. So you can't buy relationship with God. You can't buy relationship with the Son, Jesus. You can't buy relationship with the Spirit. God just freely gives himself into relationship with us. So when God sent Jesus into the world to become the God-man, God in the flesh, that was God's gift of himself to the world. Jesus is God in the flesh, a free gift of grace to the world. When Jesus leaves, at the beginning of Acts we saw that, and he sends his spirit back into the world, that is a free gift from God. Of what? His presence in the world. The Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force. It is the personal presence of God with us. So I love that song we sang. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. His presence is with us. The presence of who? Of God. There's one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And whenever he brings his presence into our midst, it's a free gift, a gift of grace. When we experience eternal life, we experience a resurrection like Jesus had, and we live eternally with God, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but it's a free gift of grace given by God through Jesus Christ that we might live life eternally, both now and in the future, with God. Where? In his presence, in relationship. Grace is always about relationship with God, but it's free. You cannot buy it. I'm sorry. True love, true relationship can never be bought. In a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey, uh, he talks about this is just sort of a leadership book, uh, but he talks about the difference between the goose and the golden egg. And he says, in any relationship, in any business in life, if you only focus on the golden egg, which is the final product, and you neglect the goose, eventually your business will die. Your relationships will die. Because you've gotten it backwards. If you take care of the goose, care for the goose, love the goose, in relationship with the goose, the goose will continue time and time again to produce golden eggs. 
think it's a great analogy for how we have to experience the life and power of God through the Holy Spirit. If we only care about getting the golden egg like Stephen or like Simon did, if we only want the golden egg, which is the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll end up killing the goose, which is your relationship with God. If you care primarily about the relationship with God, and you nurture that relationship, you will get over your lifetime many golden eggs. You'll experience the power of God again and again and again in your life. But if you just want the power, if you just want the signs and the wonders and the magic and the miracles, you'll end up killing your relationship with God. Simon, he missed it. He needed a paradigm shift. Simon's a lot like us. You could say that he, even though he lived a long time ago, before really capitalism locked in, you know, capitalism is just an expression of humanity, but he was suffering from what I call the cancer of capitalistic consumerism. Capitalistic consumerism goes like this. It's now more than ever the way of our world. Produce more, buy more, have more, store more, get more, and on and on. And you see, it's like a cancer. Uh, I'm not a medical professional. I've shown that time and time again. But cancer goes like this. It sells, reproducing, growing for no other purpose but to grow. That's what capitalistic consumerism can be. Just growing, getting more and more stuff. For what end? Just for growth's sake. Consumerism says, what's wrong with having more? More stuff, more variety, more options, more, 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 more. God wants me to have more, right? The gospel of Jesus says, I don't want you to have any more because it's killing you, because it's keeping you from God and Jesus and the free gift of the Spirit's presence in your life. Die to that stuff. You don't need more. You need me, Jesus says. And consumerism creeps into everything. It even creeps into the church. It even creeps into the church. And not just now. It has for all of history. We talked about the, the Reformation was, uh, in large part, a move against consumerism in the church. Priests were selling forgiveness of sins to help build St. Peter's Cathedral. You saw that with many of the buildings of cathedrals. They just seemed to get bigger and more ornate and the budgets went up and up and up. Why, why, why? Because why can't we have more? Why can't it be more amazing? Surely that's what God wants. In uh, evangelicalism in America, we've seen this happen. Where it's like we can't tell the difference between the way the culture markets and the way the church markets. We just start to look like the culture. And we'll never win this, right? I mean, think about Disney. How can you ever compete with Disney? They have built the magic kingdom. And all we've got is this podunk Jesus kingdom, which talks about sin and dying to yourself and giving up. We're not going to win that battle, but we don't need to win it because it's bankrupt. The magic kingdom's nice. Don't, do not hear me. I'm not saying don't go to the magic kingdom. I'm just saying when you're there, just keep telling your kids, but the Jesus kingdom is so much better. <laughs> so what do we do? What do we do in this world of consumerism? How do we not give in to our consumeristic instincts? 
which tell us we need more, we need more, we need more. Why can't we just add Jesus on? Why can't we just build up our religious portfolio? Why can't I have all of this and Jesus? That seems like the better way of thinking. What do we do? Well, just do the exact opposite of what Simon does. Step off that hamster wheel. Step off that hamster wheel. Critique it. See it for what it is. But step off of it. And don't just live your life a slave to the bonds of capitalistic consumerism. Step off of it. See it for what it is in your personal life, but also in your church life. You know, there's nothing wrong with uh, church shopping. That happens. Usually when you move to a new city, you do. You look for a church. But, but just shop for a church differently than you shop for everything else. Because when you shop for everything else, what you say is, how do I get more for less? When you're shopping for a gospel community, you should be asking this question. How do I give more to get less? It's totally backwards. So find a church where you can give, not just get. So it's like, man, this is a great church, a wonderful church. I love this church. I love the message. I love the music. Uh, great people. And you ask yourself, is there a place for me in this community to give myself away? And if the answer is no, move on to the next church. Find a place where you feel like God is telling you, this is the place I want you to give yourself away. That's how we church shop as gospel people. Find a church where you can be known because relationship is the core to everything that God is doing. Grace is about relationship. It, it, it just doesn't make any sense at all to find a church that preaches about grace where you cannot be known and know others. Because that is what a grace-filled community is. Find a place where you can be known. And then you gotta burn it. You gotta burn your religious portfolio. You gotta build a nice bonfire. You gotta take all your religious credit cards and chop them up. And you throw them in the fire. And you say, I have one card, the bank of Jesus Christ. It pays for everything, all my debts, past, present, and future. It is the way to real life. It gives me everything that I need. I need nothing but this. And we burn it all. But that one card. And that's our witness to the world. That's our witness to the capitalistic, consumeristic world that we live in. We don't consume like everybody else. We don't just build up option after option after option, variety after variety. We're pretty simple people. I love Jesus, I love his message, I love his community, I love his people, and because of that, I love everybody else that I live in this world with. That's a witness to the world. You know, there was a day in our country where our country was something of a witness. Because, see, you, could, you couldn't go to a store on Sunday. Why do you think that is? Because that's when the people of God met. That was a witness to the world that on this day, capitalistic consumerism does not rule. Well, guess what? You can go to almost any store on Sundays now, right? And I don't know what you think about Chick-fil-A. I'll tell you what I think. They make a mean chicken sandwich, and I love waffle fries. But you know what? I can't get them on Sunday. I can't get them on Sunday, and every time I'm craving that chicken sandwich, that honey roasted barbecue sauce, 
on a Sunday, and many times this has happened, I will drive there, and they're closed, and I say, what in the world? And you know what I think? I was like, that was a witness. They're losing a lot of money right now because of their conviction that one day a week, the Sabbath, needs to be for God and God alone. No consumeristic capitalism on this day. And, and just so you know, Chick-fil-A is making plenty of money. Okay, no, nobody's starving over there at corporate headquarters of Chick-fil-A. But they are a witness to the world. So I'm not making any other statement besides I love chicken sandwiches, and I love that they are a witness to something. And I wish people knew that the witness they're making is that, you know what, God rules in this corporation, at least in the high levels of leadership, in a way that's profound, that leads to the loss of money. Friends, Jesus didn't die so that you could have more. More variety, more stuff. He died so that you could have less. Less sin, less bondage, and more of him. He wants you to have more of him. That's why he died. That's what was made possible on the cross of Christ, that we can have more of God now in this life and eternally in his presence. Don't give up the opportunity to pick up Jesus because your hands are full of a bunch of crap. Let's pray. Okay. (laughs) I did not plan that. If you don't think the Holy Spirit's real, listen back to this, okay? For those of you listening online, uh, literally, God took my Bible, nothing wrong with the Bible, and threw it on the ground, okay? Let's pray. Father God, help us, help us, help us. We need your help to let go of all that stuff that the world tells us we need. Help us to let go of that false sense of security that options and variety and portfolios seem to bring. And help us to set that down that we might pick up Jesus and Jesus alone and the gospel of grace and the free gift and the Holy Spirit and life and relationship with God the Father for now, in this world, at this time, and for all eternity to come. God, we right now in our hearts and our minds lay all of that down. Help us to focus on you. Help us to repent of trying to buy your favor in our life, trying to buy our forgiveness, trying to buy your power. God, we repent in the the small little ways that we do that and maybe in the big grand ways that we've done it in the past. We lay it all down right here, right now, and you died for it. You've already taken care of it, but we have to lay it down at your feet. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray all of this, and we hope for an eternity with you. Amen.